The other uh, anecdote or you know, sort of allegory I use is it's like being a conductor of an orchestra. And most people haven't been a conductor of an orchestra, but everybody sort of knows what that looks like. And I use that analogy because basically a conductor basically is responsible for creating the whole like event, right? Like you have a concert in Carnegie Hall, the conductor is responsible for picking the music, for, for hiring the team, right? And in the where I say specifically. A great book can totally challenge your conventional thinking and change your life for good. However, some of us just don't have the luxury of time of sitting down to read a book. But there are some instances in which we do have dead time and these are perfect times to learn so we can learn while driving instead of jamming to the same music on the radio or maybe at the gym well now you can dwelling has partnered with amazon's audible to give you the dwell listeners a free book yes a free book so all you have to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash dwelling and download your free book this will also be in the show notes. You can click on the link. And if you don't have a book in mind and you say, Ola, I don't actually know where to start with. Well, awesome, because I can tell you what to start with today. It's a quintessential classic. It's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So download Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that would basically just take your mind on a different spin. Of course, I'm always open to hear um, from our Dwell listeners. So email me at ola at dwelling.com. And then feel free to also give us a, a rating and review. This really helps us to rank better in iTunes. I can't wait to hear from you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us on The Dwelling Show. I'm your host, Ola Dantes. I've got the legendary Scott Chopping with us. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? Ola, great to be here. I'm doing great. Thanks for thanks for the invite. And, uh, you know, so, so happy to be here with you. Yeah, I definitely can't wait to dig in a little bit here. So I'm sure you can do it way better. Than and you're the only one who's ever called me legendary, by the way. <laughs> There's always a first time, right? I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to tell my wife you said that. Hey, this, <laughs> you know, the guy I met, he said. <laughs> <laughs> and this is on recording too, so she can hear it. Yeah, right, right. I have proof. Of <laughs> Get her to subscribe and give us a review while she's there too. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, I'll tell her to watch this. Just like see what you see. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah, that. Great to, great to be here with you all. Thank no, you. awesome, awesome, awesome. No, please um, just kind of tell our listeners a little bit more about who Scott is and kind of what you've been up to and what you're doing lately, actually. Sure. So Scott Chopin, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called the Urban Pacific Group of Companies. Uh, we're a real estate developer uh, based in Southern California, and we build um, new construction workforce housing. In fact, we created a, a specific type of that model called Urban Townhouse or UTH. Um, I've been doing real estate development for, you know, 35 years, uh, grew up around it in, in, in a like family background of real estate development, um, you know, worked several years professionally for other companies and then founded Urban Pacific in 2000, um, now 20 years. In fact, uh, this year's 20, uh, March is 20 years of operations in, in the real estate development space. And um, basically, in the last three and a half years, have really uh, moved to totally focus on this workforce housing space because we see both the need for it, right? Families that need middle-income housing, think working-class families, um, but also it's a great business model that allows us to uh, really what we say, Ola, as we are pairing private capital with workforce housing. That's that's like our, our... 
our stand or our narrative about this um, this product type. Um, you know, we're like everybody else um, having you know changes in the marketplace related to to coronavirus. So, you know, obviously that's true for everybody. Um, but I will report actually because we house our units house multi generational families. We're really seeing actually a, really a positive effect from what's going on now where families want to recombine in uh, larger family groups. Our units have five bedroom, four bathrooms. And so we're at the space where people go to when they move out of other places, they move into our units, um, which we're you know, really happy for, anticipated that before uh, this recession came. But you know, now that we're in it, we're, we're happy that it's performing the way we expected. Wow, a lot packed into that. Um, I cannot wait. I remember when, you know, one of your team members reached out. I was like, I cannot wait to talk to Scott. Um, literally been looking at development a, a ton here in Houston. I'm actually mm-hmm. looking at a, a light tech deal right now. Um, so gotcha. affordable, you know, affordable housing, workforce housing, you know, um, not, yeah. not a major overlap, but there is that mm-hmm. kind of um, sweet spot. So cannot wait yeah. to, um, to jump in. So first and foremost, maybe we should just do that. What is workforce housing for those that we, you know, we don't know that term? Yeah. So that's a great question. So, so the way I term, and, and it's a, it's a great question because everybody has a very different definition of it. So the way we define workforce housing is it's rental housing for, for working families, right? Like, you know, and, and workforce housing doesn't have to be for families, but that's how part of the way we define it. And, and part of the way, like you're working on the LIHTC deal. So part of the way we define what is middle income or, you know, working class, you know, incomes or incomes that are between 80 and 120% of the local median income. So it would be for whatever county you're in for us, it's LA and Orange counties. Um, and it's really intended to, you know, to sit between true affordable, right? Your LIHTC deal you described, that would be for families that are below 60%. On the other end of the spectrum, you have your true market rate, which is luxury class A, high end, right? Um, you know, no, no income restrictions. And, and our product sits in the middle of those two. You know, we call it middle income housing, workforce housing, those sort of are used interchangeably. But the key for us is that the families that we serve really don't have any housing options in new, the new development marketplace that serve them specifically, right? If you've got your affordable housing that's government subsidized, that's for families and seniors and individuals that are, you know, of these in these low-income categories, market rate right now is predominantly serving Gen Z millennial, right? So you have your studio and one-bedroom product, right? Serving that demographic, which is, you know, appropriate, right? That's a big demographic cohort. Um, but we really uh, identified this niche of, you know, really large working class families, think blue collar, you know, work in, cert- in the service economy, work in the retail economy, work in construction, and through the combining of their family uh, income earners. So like one of the characteristics of our families is that they're multiple earner families, right? So, you know, if you were your Gen Z, you know, new entrants into the job marketplace, renting the studio and downtown Houston, um, you know, as soon as their job changes, they have to move out of the unit, right? They can't afford the unit anymore. And our families were looking between two and five wage earners, you know, per household. So if anyone's person's employment situation changes, you have, 
you know, between one and four other income earners that are making up the difference. And in fact, we call that the economic sharing lifestyle. So they're sharing incomes and expenses across the family group naturally. Like they've already lived this way. We're just providing a unit type that's coherent with their lifestyle. Wow, fantastic. There's so many things I want to ask you because obviously I'm just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big geek when it comes to like development. I'm really into um, adaptive reuse as well right now. Uh, we yeah. just saw the property with the MEP guys and, you know, an office building we're looking at as well. So I, I'm yeah. just kind of into developers. But, you know, before we even get, you know, go really technical, you mentioned that you kind of grew up in real estate development. And, you know, I wonder if that kind of helps you now with your career, but I just kind of want to go back as well um, yeah. How did you really get started? Because, you know, before you become a developer, I mean, we all know the famous developers, Trump and, you know, Jared Kushner, but before you become a, a developer, what did you, what was that process like and how did you kind of get started? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I, like the, the, the joke I make is that, you know, no one chooses real estate development as a, you know, like they meet with their high school counselor and you know, you take the test and they go, gosh, you could be a plumber or you could yeah. be a real estate developer. <laughs> right, like, right. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, as I talk to people, a lot of people don't even know what a real estate developer does, right? Like, you know, they, they, the joke, I, they go, oh, so you, so you design buildings. And I go, yeah, uh, I don't design it literally. I hire an architect. Okay, you don't do that. So you build the building, right? I go, well, I don't swing the hammer, but I hire construction people, so after that, a couple of times they go, I, dude, I don't know what you do. Like, what is, <laughs> like, what, what? And so the way I put it is my, my uncle Mike and my dad, that's the family business that, that I grew up in, uh, both real estate developers in their own right. Uh, my uncle Mike, predominantly in the commercial office development space and a lot of apartment development. My dad, predominantly in the apartment development side. So it gave me a good background. This is answering your question. It gave me a great background about what, a real estate developer was at, at a really basic level, right? Like, you know, okay, you find a piece of land, you design it, you know, you get the government to approve it, you build it, you know, you rent it and do whatever people do. But I think what I never really held until like was like, you know, 18 or 19 years old is like, like, why do you choose that? Like, what, what would prompt one to choose that as a career? How do you make a living at it? How do you make it be a profitable business if you're going to be an entrepreneur? Um, Michael Mike, basically, he used to tell us, he said, we're entrepreneurs in real estate, meaning uh, an entrepreneur has to take a business or a project from A to B, right? You start with nothing and you go to the end result, which is a, is a valuable project, you know, hopefully, right? That's the goal. And that you basically have to do anything and everything in between those to get from A to B, whatever it takes. There is no like, you know, set standard of things that you do. You know, you're going to have roadblocks. You're going to have the government throwing, you know, like, you know, roadblocks in your way politically, you know, design wise. You're going to have the market go against you. Capital's available or not. Land's available or not. Construction's costly or not. Right. All those things sort of you put in. And so I, I always love the way he described it, you know, entrepreneurs in real estate, we have to take a project through to its, you know, its steps to make it final value. The other uh, anecdote or, you know, sort of allegory I use is it's like being a conductor of an orchestra. And most people haven't been a conductor of an orchestra, but everybody sort of knows what that looks like. And I use that analogy because basically a conductor 
basically is responsible for creating the whole like event, right? Like you have a concert in Carnegie Hall, the conductor is responsible for picking the music, for, for hiring the team, right? And in the way I say specifically is the conductor knows what the violinist should play. He doesn't, or she doesn't play the violin themselves, but he goes, they fit with this, the cellist and the violinist and the people playing flute. Now I know how that all should fit together and what they should be playing, but I don't actually play it myself. I don't play the violin per se, but I know what it should produce and what the final result should be and how it fits together with the overall like team, right? And, and basically the conductor is responsible for delivering a final product, right? Even if they don't do any of the parts, the component parts themselves, they bring it all together, right? They're the synthesizer of it, if you will. So, you know, having a family background, in, you know, instructed me on that, but ultimately it was reading, you know, one of several books, uh, but the most famous one people would know is, you know, how to make a million dollars investing in real estate on the weekends, you know, famous 50s era book. And that book, you know, I'm just a, I read a lot naturally and, you know, was sort of looking for, you know, at 18 or 19 years old, like, you know, what am I going to do? Right. I got to, you know, how am I going to, like, I knew I was ambitious to do things, to produce an identity, to be successful, to, to make money, to, to have money, to take care of my family. You know, I knew at that point that I wanted to have a family and that this book opened my eyes about what being an entrepreneur meant, meaning yes, go from A to B, but why do you create that valuable project? Well, at the end of the day, it's to produce a valuable asset that is more valuable than what it costs you to buy it and, and, and you know, repair it or build it, you know, if you build a new building. And so I think it's sort of the combination of the background in real estate plus just observations of what other people were doing in the marketplace vis-a-vis -vis reading, you know, watching other people doing it. I even worked in the trades for a couple of years out of high school and sort of that like started to paint the picture for me. I go, oh, okay, this, you create these projects, you sell them or you rent them at the end of the day to create value. And, you know, if you do it correctly and, and in a disciplined way, you can make a lot of money, right? I think certainly development industry is known for producing great value and great profits. It's also incredibly risky. And so, you know, you, you learn how to make the money and then really you spend the rest of your career learning how to mitigate risk. And that's where I, I am today. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, not to kind of dive too deep, but I, I want to actually. So yes, a lot of, you know, especially young folks will see like developers and think, wow, I want to be a developer. I can, you know, choose what private jet I, I use and, you know, <laughs> you're whatever. But as we know, you and I, um, development yeah. is, you know, you, you have to really know what you're doing. You have to mitigate those risks, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of pre-con work, as we call it in our industry, pre-construction work. Mm -hmm. So how, you know, what are the ways, just a few, you know, do you kind of mitigate those risks, right? And on the yeah. back of that, uh, what are the barriers to entry, right? So if there's a young person listening to our conversation thinking, hey, maybe I want to be a developer, right? What yeah. are the barriers to entry? Like when you were 18 reading those books, what, what were the things that you had to overcome? Yeah, so great question. So mitigate risk. I mean, obviously, there's infinite numbers of, of ways to, to mitigate risk. But really, if you think about it, like, what are the risk categories? And how do we mitigate those? So, you know, when you think about what a developer does, you know, you identify a market that you want to operate in both geographically, and also the, you know, are you doing apartments, are you doing for sale, or are you doing retail commercial 
And so inside of that is to create a, a, a strategy that anticipates future changes and drift in the marketplace. Now, that's not an easy thing. I say it like I don't mean to say it's simple. Oh, yeah, figure out a great strategy and don't don't mess it up. Right. But, you know, you know, look at things that are going to be future trends and, and anticipate as best you can using your networks and your knowledge about what product type you're going to be. And this is why we do the UTH workforce housing. As we, we, from my knowledge, knew that we, we had an undersupply story in California for middle-income families, that these families would be intensely stable in a recessionary environment because of this multi-earner structure we talked about. And so as I started to formulate this program about three and a half years ago, I was like, you know, nobody's, nobody's building in this marketplace. Nobody's building new housing for large families and middle incomes. Now, I didn't know I could make a profitable business out of it, but we started to experiment and, and, and you know, formulate the product in a way that we, we knew, you know, if we produced the results that we intended would be profitable, right? So you pick a good strategy. You know, land is, you know, buy, like, you know, the joke, the running joke I say is when I was a young project manager working for other people, there was no deal I couldn't do. I'm a great problem solver. I could take on really difficult, hairy deals. And gosh, I, I you know, I've got this opportunity. I can make this work no matter what it took. Now I go, no, don't do that. Like you, I'm looking for the easiest possible project. Now there is no easy project. But, you know, as an example, like I was having a conversation with a guy, he ended up building an apartment building on a fairly sloped site, right? And I go, nah, dude, I don't do that anymore. I, I want to build like dead flat. I don't like any slope. I mean, you know, maybe a little bit, right? But nothing intense. Like I look at slope sites, you know, my team brings them to you. I go, nope, next. Uh, sites that have environmental issues, you know, leak underground tanks or oil and gas in the dirt. Nope next right um anything that's like doubtful about the zoning or entitlements needed to approve the project and that's you know any sort of heavy lift no next in other words there's you 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 sort of get disciplined to reject a lot of sites and do it very quickly right versus you know when i was young i'd hang on to everything i could i can make this work i can make this work and i think that's a i think that's a young uh person young in their career or young generally is just an optimist, right? Like people who are developers have to be optimistic, right? We're self-selected to be able to sustain a very difficult business, right? So, and I'm still an optimist, right? It's just now I'm much more seasoned and I go, oh, I did that. That didn't work. Oh, I did that. That didn't work. Gosh, let's not do that again. That was terrible. Let's not do that again. And so eventually sort of start eliminating all these other choices, right? If you have 50 choices of land locations and land types so you're going to pick you know two out of 50 and 48 are going to get rejected right um the other one i would probably i'll i'll finish this this question with this when you underwrite a deal right so you're in your deals in houston you're looking at your litech deals maybe talking about your adaptive use deal you know when you're young and optimistic super hyper optimistic you go oh rents are 900 bucks a month for this unit and, you know, I comped them out. I did research on the market and gosh, but my deal needs like 1100 a month. To make it work. I think I could get 1100. I can, you know, push the rents. Now I'm like, dude, I got to be at 900 and I got to match the market 
and do a better product or like be under the market and have a better product, right? Like I increased the likelihood that I would have a smooth, successful lease up of that unit. Now I'm being sort of generic in my answer here, but it's sort of the idea that you don't like be optimistic for optimis optimism's sake, that you actually look at it and you go, I don't actually think I can achieve that extra rent. You go, no, I got to like the market is the market, right? The stats are what they are. So like, believe them, like, don't think you are magical because you are optimistic and have a get it done attitude that you can somehow overcome the statistics in the marketplace, right? Or let's say the other one would be, oh, a lot of new developments coming you know, downtown Houston, building a lot of apartments. It's a big apartment pipeline. But my deal is special. I can overcome. I'm in downtown also. And boy, I'm, I'm that better. No, nope, you're not. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm like I'm laughing so much at the background, Scott. <laughs> right. So it's just, and, and I, I don't know, like, I, it's hard for me to say it, but it's conservative underwriting. But I hate using that distinction because people go, well, what does that mean? So I'm trying to give examples of what conservative means is, you know, a friend of mine, he got, you know, it's sort of an old saying, but, you know, assume it takes twice as long and it costs twice as much as you think, right? You look at your pro forma and go, gosh, it's going to cost me $10 million to build this thing. I really should assume it's 20 million. Now I say that most deal wouldn't assume a doubling of construction costs and that the deal could survive. Like it doesn't work anymore, but the attitude, the approach is correct. Like Assume that it's not going to go easily and better than everybody else. Assume it's going to be a little harder or maybe a lot harder. And if you underwrite it and it survives that test, then when you get into the actual execution of the deal, you will always have friction. A little bit more time that it takes. The inspector didn't show up. The city's slow. You're leasing slower than you intended. You didn't get 900. You're getting 875. The market went against you a little bit. But if you built in this like cushion of conservatism in your pro forma, then you're going to survive, right? And that's really what I mean. You know, you learn how to be a developer and then you spend the next 20 years mitigating risk. Everything I do right now is lessons that I've learned over the years from myself, my own, you know, breakdowns or market changes against me or watching other people do it. Um, that's why I always encourage people. And this sort of, sort of goes to your second question, which is get a mentor like joint venture deals, partner with somebody, assume when you're getting into the business that you don't know everything and that there's a lot of other people that if you make them the right offer of free time for internship or I found a great land deal, I tied it up, I'm bringing it to you, Mr. Developer, um, you know, to do the deal and I want to be a partner and teach me, right? Maybe I'll like take a little less of an equity position in the deal or get paid less if you're trying to flip it or whatever, but let me hang around. Let me go to meetings. Let me read all the documents. Let me help, right? Um, interning for free is the other option. In fact, I, I'll encourage people, Olaf, go to my uh, LinkedIn profile. It's just Scott Choppin on LinkedIn. There's an article I wrote called Six Ways to Build, Six Ways to Build Your Real Estate Development Career. Um, and that's basically, I've got a really long form article of like all these methodologies. If you want to get into real estate development and learn it being, getting a mentor, you know, getting a mentor or doing an internship is one of those, but there's several other strategies that are in that article that can help. 
Oh, wow. Scott, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much for that, for that offer. So um, just a quick question, though. Are you doing deals in California? Because all we, all we hear about is there are no deals in California. There are no deals in California. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I Like, not only am I doing deals in California, both recently and right now, literally, um, we're actually accelerating during coronavirus because of this multi-earner household where again, where people move out of a studio and they move into our unit with their family or roommates, we're actually accelerating. But the bottom, but the basic answer to this is this product, this UTH model, oh, it really comes out of the California marketplace, right? Like in other words, we were like, I don't want to say forced, but we were required to innovate because of how California is, meaning high housing price, high rent, high land costs, high construction, incredibly difficult political, you know, process. I mean, you're in Houston, which, you know, ostensibly has no zoning, not, you know, in the way that we, we have. And, you know, we've looked at Dallas and Austin and, you know, love, actually love Texas, uh, to, be, to be quite honest with you about it. Um, but we're, yeah, we're in the most difficult zoning, you know, marketplace in, in the entire United States. I, I would argue California is more difficult than a place like New York City, which is itself very complicated. But the thing about New York, at least in my, you know, you know, knowledge of the marketplace and, and people that I have in my networks that are in New York, is that New York at some level wants more housing, right? Like they go, we're a really tight market. And, you know, today we can argue that, you know, New York's deeply affected by coronavirus, but, you know, it was the hottest market in the United States. It will become that again in the future at some point. But New York really has this attitude of, like they, they want development, right? Yeah. And, you know, neighborhoods, neighborhood groups and neighborhood councils are, are resistant, but California has a deeply embedded resistance to new housing projects, like politically in neighborhoods, city councils that are like hyper responsive to neighbors to kill off projects. And it's getting a little bit better more recently, but we, be, we come from a very difficult and, uh, you know, process and environment for that. And so what that does when you do get a product like UTH, it, it works really well, but that really came from the environment, right? Like, you know, if you're an animal that, you know, is evolves on a, you know, island and you know, the predators, et cetera, and, you know, you know how to deal with that, then you survive. And that's basically what we are. We're a product. Our design is a product type is a function of the California marketplace. Now I will say this, We've tested the model in places like Portland, Seattle, Denver. And we look, we're actually looking at Dallas for a period of time pre-coronavirus. And this is, this is a great asset for all those marketplaces. As long as you can find a middle-income family demographic that has a you know, stagnant or, or low income versus housing costs. Right now, every, every metro has a different formula. Right? Portland is different than LA, is different than Denver, that's different than Dallas. As, as long as you can look for that gap, right? This is housing costs, this is incomes, right? That spread when it's big enough, right? Between, you know, middle incomes and high housing costs, then that's where our formula works. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, yeah, I mean, I just want to quickly, I just want to mention something. I was looking at a deal that was in a municipal solid waste um, landfill. <laughs> when, when you made that comment of environmental, I was like, oh my goodness, that's the deal. I'm, <laughs> that's one of the deals I'm, yeah. I'm grasping onto. But I think from yeah. what you've just said, 
um, that's probably going to be a pass uh, anyways. Yeah, look, yeah, and, and I never want to be the person that like squelches somebody's optimism. But it's the, we think of it this way, you're by choosing sites that have less complexity or less problems or less friction is the way I describe it, right? Friction being anything that costs your project more or slows you down or increases complexity. That's just, that's lowering the chances of success in the deal. So when I look at a flat site or I look at a site that's clean or I'm delivering a product type that's undersupplied and, you know, I have no competition really and I can produce profits, all those, what they do is they increase the likelihood of success. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. Complex sites have lower likelihood of success. Simpler sites have higher likelihood, right? Just generally, like if you look at the, the, the comparison, now, I don't say any site is simple and development is never a simple process, right? It's, it's complex relative to other, you know, real estate investment types, say value add, you know, you can just go apartments and, you know, do paint carpet and, you know, countertops and counters and, you know, cabinets and, you know, those, that's a simpler process. Um, but in many cases, the profitability is, is, is less too, right? Higher risk should be higher profit. It's just that you got to take the higher risk while mitigating it as much as possible, right? So people look at California, like you you describe and go, oh man, California is like the toughest marketplace in, in the United States. And I go, it is. But we've figured out a product type that we can fit in the specific niche of certain neighborhoods, certain land types, certain renter profile, certain build type, certain finance, financial structure, equity and debt, that the combination of all those basically mitigates risk maximally, Right reduces complexity as much as possible, which increases, you know, profitability. And mind you, while also being innovative, right? Like we're not competing with 15 other big developers in that marketplace, right? Which is what's happening now where you've got the studio and one bedroom product that's serving Gen Z and millennial, very good marketplace, big demographic cohort, largest in US history, right? The combination of Gen Z and millennial, right? That's really where people should be competing, but that doesn't mean you have to, right? And in that marketplace, all the big players are in that marketplace, which is just a signal, another another complexity, right? When you have more competition, that makes the, the, the marketplace more complicated to assess it for your project to be successful or not. And then also when a recession comes, if you're competing against the Trammell Crows and the Holland Partners of the world, right, you're not going to, if you're not them or some proxy of them, then you're going to have a harder time competing. They can lower rents more, right? Trammell Crow can lower rents and wipe out the majority of their competition if they want to. Like they have a big enough financial statement that they don't worry about that. I mean, you know, they're concerned about it. They want it to be profitable. So I don't get me wrong, but, you know, they go, oh, you know, XYZ company, they got a competitive product and they're at, you know, 900 bucks a month. Okay. I'm Trammell Crow. I'll be at 850 all day long. I still am doing okay, but I'm going to basically drive them into the ground. Right. I mean, that's like, you know, very, you know, rough, pure competition. Um, and that's the reality of it. So you go, I can either compete in that space or you, I can go into another niche or another contrarian space where the competition is less or none, if you can find that. Now, I'm not saying it's easy and simple, uh, and it does require being, you know, on the edge of uh, a marketplace, right? Not in right in the center of it, 
both geographically, but also product type. And, you know, you're not going to get everybody going with you. Like some equity investors, you know, won't look at a five bedroom, four bath UTH unit. Some lenders won't lend on that. That's too extreme or too different for them. I'm encouraged by that though, right? When people tell me, gosh, that's really, I've never heard of that before. Wow, that's really different. I'm like, I, in fact, the day that I hear, great, that's the best thing I've ever heard. That's a great idea. That's when you stop. I'm starting to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to worry about it. I go, hmm, I got to gotta change it again, or I got to look for something different. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't say we won't ever compete. There's always competition, but you can choose the marketplace that you can compete in and do it in a way that lessens competition or you have a better innovation. Right, right now we have a better innovation and there's plenty of small and mid-sized developers in California, right? Just none of them are doing this particular innovation. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You've said a lot of stuff that I feel like I've heard from John uh, McNellis. I don't know if you've heard of his name yet. The Urban Land Institute. Um, he has a, I think a book out that I, I read as well. Yeah. So I just, I'm looking at a time. I wish we could talk about a case study from kind of, you know, start <laughs> to finish, but Maybe we'd have well, to bring that it back. Well, that's interview number two. So yes, let's, yes, let's yes. Talk, yes. <laughs> I feel like I can hear my my listeners saying, "Hola, let's talk about a deal." You know, um, yeah, like right. like, a, like a like a quick deal. But we'd have, probably have to bring you back because we're definitely definitely dwelling into the quick rounds. These sure. are going to be quick questions, quick answers. Yeah. So, first question: What makes you Scott unique? What is that differentiating factor that separates you from the next guy or the next girl? Um, two quick things. One is is my my organization around continuous competitive learning, right? Like I I'm just like super hungry for new ideas, new knowledge. Always, um, not that I've ever you know had any doubts that that was you know a good thing. I just realize how how you know special it makes me. And then I think the, the just the organization around. Uh, you know, uh, building strong networks, like being an offer of help to people around me such that I can attract the best people to be of help back to me, right? So I form the best teams and gather the best people around me because my philosophy is to be, you know, first and foremost, an offer of help, powerful offer of help to, you know, those around me and then ask for powerful help in return. Wow, love it. Um, you're an avid reader, just like me, you, you mentioned. What was the last book that you read? What was the one thing that you picked up from that book? You know, um, so the one, the one book I'll mention that, uh, that, I, that I'm really encouraged is it's uh, Grant Cardone. Everybody's heard of Grant Cardone. It's his 10X rule book. And he's got this concept in there called omnipresence. It's really a, a marketing and sales terminology. But it's the idea uh, that, you know, as a, as, a, as a company, as in any business, right, whether it be real estate development or real estate investment, you really need to always be putting yourself out into the marketplace, you know, in the public domain, right? Public speaking, being on podcasts, right? Writing articles, social media. And omnipresence is this idea of being pervasively out of the marketplace, being basically what Grant says everywhere, all the time to everyone, right? That that's the that's the goal. That's the that's the idea of doing that. And you know, I don't know that it's you know physically possible to do that in the way that that you know he writes about. But I've basically spent the last you know three plus years really working that 
um, deeply. Um, you know, predominantly we do it to, to help us expand our networks of investors, right? To invest in our projects. Um, but I would encourage anybody in any business to do that, right? Because in, in today's social media driven environment, digital content, digital media, you have to be doing that. In fact, Gary Vaynerchuk says basically every business now needs to be a media company, right? Like you, you are required to do that if you want to compete effectively. Absolutely. Absolutely. Final, final question, Scott. You, you're doing amazing work um, with this niche, um, you know, at product type. You've obviously got your family, you're a busy man. What do you do for fun? Yeah, so great question. Well, not enough. Let me put, let me start there. Not enough. Um, I do a couple things. In fact, as I'm sitting here in my studio right there is a, is a Stratocaster. Um, so I played guitar my entire life. I'm, I'm a real big fan of, of the, the blue genre. So you could think, you know, guys like Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, Albert King, um, you know, all those old school, you know, blues guitar players. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And then when I can, I try to get out into the water. I live in, in uh, the city I live in is Long Beach, is at the southern end of LA County next to Orange County, right on the coast. And uh, I try to go sailing when I can. So, you know, going out sailing on, on sailboats. Nice. Really appreciate that. If there's, yeah, if there's somebody listening and thinking, wow, maybe they're in the California market or anywhere in the country and they want to kind of get to know you, maybe plug into, you know, um, everything you're doing, what is the best place people can reach out and get to know you more? Yeah, so here's what I would do uh, as an offer to your audience. Um, uh, anybody can email me. Uh, my email address is choppin, C-H-O-P-P-I-N at urbanpacific.com. Um, tell me you were on Ola, or just tell me you saw me on Ola's show, and tell me you want to get our free ebook, which is uh, entitled How to Survive and Thrive in a Recession, which I think is a good subject matter right now, given you know the, the rapid and deep changes that we have going on in the economy. Um, so send me a note and an email and we'll send out the ebook. We'll add you to our email list. Um, that's a great way to get a hold of me. People can go to our website, of course, www.urbanpacific.com and then uh, go to our investor education section. There's a ton of stuff, all this stuff that we're talking about today, you know, underwriting markets, new market cycle trends, you know, all that tracking and, and reading and analysis that we're doing in the marketplace. We're just sharing that out. Uh, onto our uh, e-blast and uh, blog posts. So a lot of good information coming out. Scott, really appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time. We definitely have to bring you on for part two. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks all. Let's do that case study. I'd be happy to do that. You may have heard the phrase, there are a thousand ways to make a thousand dollars in real estate. Well, now you can actually tune into the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast with over a thousand, believe it, or a thousand podcasts and still going. The best real estate investing advice ever show is hosted by a very good friend of mine, Joe Fellers. Joe talks to influential thought leaders. We share the best advice ever with none of the fluff. You've got to check this stuff out. So listen and subscribe at bestevershow.com. That's bestevershow.com.